Moving is not very fun. It's not a fun, enjoyable experience. Usually, if you're going to move somewhere, at least in my experience, there might be like, at the end of the day, there's a reason why you're doing it. There's, there's a point that's like, maybe this will be more stable. It's a better home, a better situation. But the process of getting from A to B is quite arduous. Um, I've gone through a number of moves in my life. Many of you have probably gone through many more moves, but I just want to share a few of them. The first move of my life was when I was around two. My family moved from Virginia to College Station. I don't remember much about that, except uh, that my parents could remember a lot about that. I remember a very large truck that I could not ride in, and that was, that's, that's most of my memories from that age. <laughs> uh, I remember growing, when I, when I went off to college, so I grew up in College Station and came to, came to UT as a freshman, uh, to the Jester Dormitory, um, which somehow is still in existence, I don't know why. Um, I was on the 13th floor, of Jester my freshman year, and the move, and then my parents came and moved me, and then they left, and then I was like, okay, what do I do now? Um, but I, thankfully, I didn't have a lot of stuff to deal with, and it's amazing how, like, just stuff starts to add up over time. Um, I remember going to, went to seminary, uh, went to seminary in North Carolina, my, my parents again helped me move, thank you very much. For that, dropped me off my first place in North Carolina, which was right next door to a Costco, which is pretty convenient. Just like walk over to Costco or when you want, and just I'm just gonna have a, a slice of pizza today and, and leave. But um, that was good. After that, I went to Denver and had to downsize even more. And I went from like a, a room in the house that we were renting to about like 25, 30 square feet um, in a in the shelter I was living in. I didn't have a lot of personal space, um, but that was that was a big change. Then I was living with a lot more people um, and had to, to adjust to that. Then I moved back to Austin, eventually got what Alina and I joked was our apartment in the city, my apartment in the city, which was an efficiency apartment, like airport in 53rd Street. Um, and it was the only place I could find in Austin that would let me have a dog for less than $400 a month. So you can imagine what it looked like. <laughs> it's not, not the most regal um, location in Austin. And then we moved, when we got married, um, to where Alina had been living in Crestview. We called that in the suburbs of Crestview, um, which was the suburb 50 years ago. Not very suburban right now. But, um, and then that's a different kind of move, where you move in, you share households. And suddenly, I had my stuff, and then it was like, it's our, our stuff, I guess, and like all the stuff we had, and you just like, you fill up space when you live in a place. No matter how big the house, you're going to find the stuff to fill it in. And so then we moved, uh, my first appointment was in Smithville. So we moved to Smithville. And the idea of this church is okay about moving past elders, especially. And so if you're an ordained, ordained elder or, or a provisional elder, they'll give you, they'll pay for movers and give you some support. But if you are not quite there yet, there's nothing for you. <laughs> and so um, we moved the U-Haul, drove a few U-Haul trucks back. We thought we needed one trip, we needed three trips. Um, you know, and it's like, this doesn't even include the boxing, the packing, the unpacking. And we moved into this, this parsonage that was like 2,300 square feet. We moved from like 1,200 square feet to 2,300 square feet. And it, but it's also a parsonage, so it's not quite ours. 
Oh. There's like all sorts of weird dynamics. It's cool that they like fix stuff when they ask for it, but they're still kind of, it's right by the church, it's kind of nosy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so then we moved to Austin. Right? And we go from 2,300 square feet to 1,400 square feet. And again, it's just, we have, you know, you fill up space and you're like, gosh, that's a lot. There's not as much space here. You gotta make decisions, you gotta, you gotta deal with that, and you're moving with kids. You gotta figure out someone to look after the kids while you're lifting all the boxes so you don't just step on them or drop a box on their head. Uh, all of these, all of these concerns of, of moving, and then this doesn't even get it doesn't get to like the packing, the unpacking, all of the discernment of like, do I need this? Do I want this? Does this spark joy in me? Or not? <laughs> all of that pressure and trauma over the moves. And I, and I share that, and all of you, I'm sure, have your own experiences, your own stories of the moves you made. I know many of you um, served in the military and the armed forces, and so have had, those are different moves, like moves around the world, moves to bases, moves to write-off bases, different, different choices and ideas of what your family can do. But I say all that about moves and moving, to kind of, to kind of as a, as to end our series that we've been going on, that one of the things about not having a home and experiencing homelessness is it's like your life, you're moving every single day. And it's like every single day, that trauma, that little trauma you have, and it is a trauma of moving, of, of breaking away from what you had before and entering into something new, you experience that every day. Even if you have a tent that's someplace, it's still that it could not be there. It may not be there, that, that, that tension. And this doesn't even get to the sleeplessness of, of life on the streets. This doesn't get to the difference between having your own space, a comfortable bed, and not having that. There's on top of all of that is this, this inherent stress of the transience of life, the challenge of that. When I moved, when I did my moves, I would, there was always this hope that at the end of the day there would be some stability. There would be like, okay, at least maybe we'll have a mortgage that we can pay for. At least we'll have a job that's going to help support us. We're doing this for a purpose to get there. Without that, it's just again and again the same um, pressure of experience and senses, the overwhelming of the senses of that trauma. My brothers and sisters, we are finishing up our series for the season of Epiphany called New Year, New Homes, of looking at these, these great texts from the season of Epiphany as well as the reality of homelessness in our area. And I wish I could give you a solution at the end of the day, but there isn't, there isn't an easy, easy fix. Um, so this is the end of the series, not the end of the conversation, not the end of our, our participation in this. My, uh, I had a conversation this past week with a gentleman who had been visiting a few times, and he is just starting a new position with the city of Austin to kind of look after, um, look, oversee some of the city parks and the, the wilderness areas, the, the un, um, unmowed areas that Austin parks, they have a plan for the mowed areas, they have a plan for the rec centers. They don't have a plan for 85% of the parks that are forested. And so he's coming in to kind of try and build a plan. He's a biologist, but, but part of that reality is that there's a lot of um, individuals experiencing homelessness who live in those wooded areas. So it's like, how can we, it's, a, it's not just a land management issue, it's not just a biology issue, it's a, it's a human issue. It's a, um, figuring out what, is, what can we do in a, broad, in a broad scope. How can we address this? And one of the questions he had for me 
was he, he wasn't trained in this. He didn't come from this background. Again, he was a biologist. He did land management. He looked after like warblers and lizards. This was not his experience. Um, and he was like, well, what, Wilson, what if we, how could we work ourselves out of a job? Like, what can we do? And I, and I told him, I, I think if we were able to house tomorrow every single person living on the streets in Austin, that does not end homelessness in our city. This, the situation is not, is not just going to be resolved because tomorrow there will be more people with this experience. There'll, tomorrow there'll be more traumas, there'll be more situations. It's a societal thing. It's a whole society issue that we cannot, as Berkeley United Methodist Church, solve. And Jesus Christ does not put that on our shoulders to solve it all, to fix all of the errors of our society, you know? It's like if one of us was declared king tomorrow, even though you'd probably be a pretty good king or queen, I don't think we'd be able to, to fix it all tomorrow. But God doesn't call us to fix it all tomorrow, to resolve all the problems of the world, to make it all, um, yeah, make it all simpler and easier for people to leave. God does not put on our hearts that we need to take away all the sin of the world. That is what Jesus came to offer to us. Ours is but to follow him. And not just for ourselves, but for others. But we'll get to that. We'll get to that in a little bit. So, but I want to start with the simple question of what is the point of being a Christian? Because I think that gets to the heart of what's going on in Matthew 4 and the the heart of what, what we're doing here on Sunday morning. I think that's a question we should be able to ask ourselves and should and sometimes be a challenge. What is the point of being a Christian? Where is the need? Where is the need to do this? How do we see that it's so easy to kind of shift and drift into um, this assumption and these patterns of life, of going through the motions? But what is the point of being a Christian? Where is the need? My brothers and sisters, there's brokenness in this world all around us. There is self-destruction all around us. When we have people in our lives who are hurting, when we have moments in our lives when we are grieving, Some may take the position, it's like, how could a good God allow this suffering? And instead, I want us to to always think and twist the question around, this suffering and this brokenness is the reason why Jesus came to save this world. That God said, this is not right. That this death should have a stranglehold over us. That this suffering, that this sickness, that this sin, that these broken relationships, the brokenness around the world should not and will not rule. This is why Jesus came to begin with. When we see the brokenness and hurt in our brothers and sisters, we should be reminded this is why Jesus came. This is why Jesus came to us. In Matthew 4, in 4.16, in the passage from Isaiah that, that Matthew quotes, it says, the people who are in darkness have seen a great light. The people who were in darkness have seen a great light. Continuing, the the people who were in the shadow of death. Light has come for them. Light has come for them. In order to understand the point of being a Christian, in order to understand the need, we need to admit and acknowledge there is a need. There is a need in this world. There is a need often in our own hearts. And it may have been worse at one point in our life, but still today, there is a need for grace. There is a need for mercy. There is a need to lay down our nets and take that step towards Jesus. The heart of the good news of Jesus Christ is follow me. Now, when I was in a, participated as an undergrad, 
in student ministries. We had all sorts of conversations about like Calvinism or Arminianism or all sorts of like really nerdy theology talk in seminary the same way of this conversation of soteriology, which is a really big word, which means like the study of salvation. It's like, what do you need to be saved? How can you be saved? What is the way? Well, this person says this and this person says this. And at one point, I built up this like very elaborate system of what I thought the scriptures was saying and through tradition. And then um, I got to a point in my life and in my studies where it kind of all fell away. And I came back really to this passage from Matthew. That the heart of the gospel is right here. Come, follow me. And I will make you fish for people. Come, follow me. Not just for yourselves, but for the world. Come, follow me. This is at once the most simple version of good news, but also the most demanding. There's no way we can nuance our, ourselves out of it. When we have a nice, intricate system of, of belief, there's, we can all put all sorts of gray areas all throughout. It's like, well, you know, that doesn't really apply here, and I don't know about here. And there. Follow me. Well, am I following you? Yes or no? It's a pretty, pretty direct that Jesus gets. He goes to Peter and Andrew, come follow me and I will show you how to fish for people. And immediately they lay down their nets. He goes to James and John and they're out on the boat with their father. <clears throat> he says, come follow me. And they get out of the boat and they leave their father behind and they come and follow him. Follow me, not for yourself, but for the world. And this is the key. This is, this is the heart of it. This is the challenge of it, that Jesus doesn't call us to save ourselves, but to save ourselves for a purpose, that God is saving us for a purpose. God is saving us from something for a purpose. We have a need. There is brokenness in this world. If we are left to our own devices, we lean towards self-destruction. And we have a purpose that God has forgiven you and loves you and wishes to offer you to the world. That you are a part of God's healing plan for this world. Each of you has a part in that. As well, the brokenness of this world, the brokenness of this world is not just yours, but the world. So often when we are hurting and in pain, when we are grieving and suffering, when we are in the depths of deep grief, it seems like nobody understands what we're going through. It seems like nobody has ever experienced that pain. And there is always something unique to grief, but there is something universal to suffering that each of us have suffered and can connect in this way. And again, this suffering and brokenness is why Jesus has come to offer himself to us and show us a way to offer ourselves to others. Now, in, um, in 1 Corinthians, the letter that Paul wrote, that it's about, there's some, some stuff going on in the church in Corinth, and they're not really seeing eye to eye. And he starts off with this, this call for unity. Now I encourage you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, agree with each other, and don't be divided into rival groups. Instead, be restored into the same mind and the same purpose. He goes on, some say, I belong to Paul. I belong to Apollos. I belong to Cephas. <laughs> well, I belong to Christ. And you, 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 you. Like this is, I think this is denominationalism. It's like right here. Um, 
It's writ large. And then Paul goes, has Christ been divided? Where did this division come from? And then he goes, this, I think it is, I think it's good to laugh. And then he goes through, I don't think I've baptized many of you. I, don't, I can't remember. It's a very human Paul of like, you know, it's Crispus and Gaius, but I don't think it was any else of you. So don't be claiming me. Anyways, baptism is about Jesus. It's not about the person who's saying the words. And then he gets to this really, really powerful line. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are being destroyed, but it is the power of God to those of us who are being saved. It is, it is foolishness. It is foolishness. Sometimes to follow Jesus can look foolish, can look awkward, can look unsettled. I think this especially comes into talking about um, our brothers and sisters experiencing homelessness. That a lot of a tendency of the church to, to step away is this desire to not look foolish or awkward or not know what to do or not know what to say or feel either, either fear or, or un, un, concern or like, how can I make a difference? How can I do it? All of these understandable, like perfectly understandable emotions. But I want, to, I want us to rest in that what Paul says, the message of the cross is, is foolishness. It looks foolish to follow Jesus. It looked foolish for, for Andrew and Peter to follow Jesus. They were fishermen. That's what they did. It looked foolish for James and John to follow Jesus. They left their father on the boat. What did, I wonder what their dad said when he went home. It's like, gosh, James and John again going off. What's up with them? I mean, I guess they got to sow their oats or all the things that, that we say. To, to understand, when someone does something unexpected, when someone acts in a way that we're unsure of what to do, it's like, oh, that's, you know, that's not expected. They didn't follow what people are supposed to do. They didn't do the thing. They didn't go to college. They didn't get married. They didn't have 3.5 or 2.5 kids. They didn't follow what needs to be done. What's going on with them? That kind of language and discourse that can happen. When it, if, you, if you have a friend or you know someone who has this moment, this, this Jesus moment, they decide to, maybe Jesus was serious when he said, give all your stuff away and follow him. If you have a, a friend or a neighbor that one day decided to sell everything they had and follow Jesus, it'll probably look kind of foolish. It's like, oh, I don't know. What's going on with Karen? I guess she's, she decided to sell everything. It's all going. Like, what? <laughs> and then I think we should be honest that that might be our reaction. It's like, good for them. They believe it. I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I could. I have the faith to do that. That honest question we say to ourselves. The message of the cross is foolishness because it believes in something beyond what is in front of us. It believes in something beyond the power of death. It believes in something beyond the powers of self-destruction and brokenness. So, with all that being said, to what can we commit together? I think that's the challenge of us being, being a church, of understanding this, this, this discourse of follow me, of what it means to be a Christian. What are we willing to let go of? We see what, what Peter and Andrew were willing to let go of, and they were willing to let go of their livelihoods. They laid their nets down. Those nets were not cheap. A sewn net is not a cheap thing. That was all handmade. They didn't go to the net store and have like a big choice of nets. That might have been their father's net that they had to let that go 
and to move on. That is not a cheap thing. But what are you willing to let go of? What are you willing to receive back? Sometimes it's harder to receive something than to give it. Sometimes it's harder to receive a person than to offer something. It's harder to, to receive a person into your life than just to give them something and move on with your life. And what are we willing to do together? To do something together that's new means willing to look foolish, means willing to be in front of someone you may respect and not have everything together. Like if, you, if we all decided to go dancing as a church tomorrow, some of you may be great dancers. I don't know. A lot of you may not be great dancers. <laughs> I am not a great dancer. That might be kind of awkward to all like, okay, let's all dance in front of everyone. Let's do solo dance-offs right now. <laughs> it would look kind of, kind of funny. A lot of us would be like, I don't know, Pastor Wilson. I don't know. I may be able to like, sell everything I have, but I don't know if I can dance in front of people. <laughs> <laughs> but that willingness, that willingness to look, look foolish, but what can we do together? How can our life together encourage us so we're willing to step out of our comfort zone. And I think that's what it means to be a church. That's what it means to join a church, to participate. It's like, are we making it easier for each other to be good? Are we making it easier for each other to take that step to follow Jesus? Or are we reifying what the world is telling us to not look foolish, to not, to build up our storehouses and think to ourselves, I need another storehouse and say to myself, self, you have a mighty storehouse. <laughs> are, we, are we following, taking that step? Are we making it easier for each other to take that step, or are we not? So then what can we commit to together? I think as, as a conclusion to this series, that's what I want us to hold on to. What can we commit to together? In the month of February, we're going to have a number of opportunities to, as a church, commit to the needs of our community. Now, we've had this, we've begun a wonderful ministry connected with Crockett, High school and the vertical team uh, dealing with the homeless student population. We're about to get some funds for that from the district. It'll be exciting. And so we need to figure out how to do that. So that's kind of one part of this. Our work corner team, we've been the people who have been doing that for many, many years. We're in this period of discernment. But part of that discernment was it couldn't just be those individuals going forward. That if we are going to be a church that, that addresses the needs of our community, we need to do it as a church. We need buy-in from people. We need commitment from people. Now, as much as I would like to say, everybody, your pastor is telling you, go home and sell everything you can and give it to the poor and follow Jesus. That would be cool. I would love it. If one of you told me that, that'd be amazing. But what I think as a pastor and what I'm called to do is to give opportunities to take a step, to take a step towards Jesus. And what that can look like is committing to offer one hour of your time next month in February towards this. One hour of your time towards the opportunities um, of addressing the needs of our community. And that's not a lot of time. That, that's, you know, the, the Super Bowl happens once a year. That's like four, five, six hours sometimes of a lot of our time. One hour is not a lot of time. It's being open in your heart that this is something that I'm going to do, not just for myself, but for each other. Because the more people who commit to it, the more easier it will be for others. That there's some people who are like, this is the passion of my heart. I will do it no matter what. There are some people whom I kind of think it's important, but I don't know if I should be there. There's some people who are, again, on the margins and are like, well, you know, if this person does it, I'll do it. 
And the more of us who unite together around that, the more that we can do and commit to. The, the Berkeley, you know, we are, we are not the biggest church in the world. We're not the richest church in the world, but we have community. We have connections. We have family here. And this is our asset. This is what we can offer to our community, to South Austin, to the people in need. We can build relationships. And it may not be, you know, it may not look in this big macro scheme as a huge difference, but it is going to make a much bigger difference because we are going to stay connected. When I told the story um, a few weeks ago about Dominic and Uncle Lewis, the reason why Dominic wanted to have an Uncle Lewis and build that relationship is he was like, well, what if, what if every church in Austin just adopted one homeless person? I was like, wow, like, that's a pretty bold thing, Jesus talking through a seven-year-old. Um, <laughs> but I, and I think, I bet there's more than 2,000 churches in Austin. And I bet if every single church in Austin adopted one person, we could house every person who is currently on the streets of Austin. Um, like, that's, that, that is a doable thing. But we, we, can't begin, we can't begin there, and we can't do, like, house 2,000 people. But what we can do is begin the relationship with one person, with two, with a family, so that by the end of the year, they will have housing. And it may not happen, and it will be awkward, and there will be things to do. There are many opportunities that we're going to have. One of them is um, helping with the Austin Compass Network. And I share this information on the newsletter. And what, what this is, is a resource list. And so this is about, this is for everybody can have. And so when you have the questions of, if, you know, what should I tell someone? I, have, I know someone who needs, needs this, needs shelter, needs this. And so this is a great resource for everybody. Part of that is hopefully will end up that Berkeley is going to have one Sunday a month, or maybe on a fifth Sunday, where in the afternoon we go and help triage people into... Um, into the network. And so care, have dental care, eye care, all of these things, but especially connect them with resources and remind them um, that they are a person and worthy of time. That part of that is that we can connect with the greater Travis County has a huge database of every single person who's received any aid. And so it's not just this one-off thing that we see someone, we forget about it. There's some people who have qualified for Section 8 housing that have no idea because there's no way to contact them because there's no, not, not a place to do it. So to be like, hey, guess what? You have a house. <laughs> you, have, you have a room. You just need to go to this address and be a part of that. We also want to continue to build relationships and, and follow up with what's, um, some of what we've been doing with our work corner ministry over the last 30 years and figure out where are the needs in South Austin where we can offer, offer something that people want, not just say, like, here's, here's a boiled egg and walk away. But, but build a relationship and connect that with the Compass Network, connect that with those things. We want to build and dream together, but this isn't going to happen with just the, the, the small few who've been doing it forever. We need, we need buy-in and connection from a lot of people, from as many people as can. That is, that is the commitment that can happen. I want to, I want to close by, by thinking about where we started with our homes. That one of the sad things about your home, no matter how beautiful it is, no matter how well you've maintained it, is it is not going to last forever. Our homes will not last forever. Even if you've got that mortgage paid off and you've got that new garage, it's not going to last forever. Where do we want to build up our treasure? Where do we want to build up our treasure? Yesterday at uh, Andres' wedding, the scripture they wanted to read was from Ephesians 2. Now, Ephesians 2 is one of those scriptures that is only read at a wedding of a seminarian. Um, 
It's not, it's not one that usually comes along. But I want to I close by reading the rest of this, was, uh, starting with verse 19. So now you are no longer strangers and aliens. Rather, you are fellow citizens with God's people, and you belong to God's household. That's where our home is. Our home is God's household. That is where our citizenship is. It is with God in heaven. As God's household, you are built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles with Jesus Christ himself as the cornerstone. Our, our foundation, it's not, it's not a slab foundation. It's not the pillar and whatever it's called, the other foundation that shifts all the time. We don't have to worry about getting a foundation crew in for our house with Jesus. That foundation is solid. The whole building is joined together in him, and it grows up into a temple that is dedicated to the Lord. Christ is building you into a place where God lives through the Spirit. My brothers and sisters, that is, that is the hope that we have. Christ is building each of you into a place where God lives. That is a powerful thing. That is a freeing thing. Take that freedom that God is with you, not just for yourself, but for the world. Commit to each other. Help us to, help us to step forward and build a lasting ministry at this church so that we can meet the needs and change lives in our community. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.